Good morning, church. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 33, the title of this sermon is Living the Christian Life, Part 1. And even though it's a big text, if you're physically able to stand, please do uh, for the public reading of the scripture. Romans 15, starting at verse 14. Living the Christian life. So Paul the Apostle, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God, for I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now, I'm traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints, because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. So, when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with you all, or be with all of you. Amen. It's the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for you giving us your word, you being God, you redeeming us through Jesus Christ. And, and then, of course, again, you give us the word, you give us the spirit of God to inscribe the word on our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we look into your word today, that you would give us those eyes to see and those ears to hear and those hearts to receive your word, that we would be changed, that we would not be hearers only, but we would be hearers and doers. Lord, please remove me as much as possible from this, and it would just be your word going to your people. We pray, God, that um, all of your saints here will be transformed and become more like Jesus. We pray that those who don't know you would hear your gospel, they would hear the word, and that you would save them on this morning. Lord, we pray just in everything we do that it's pleasing to you, and we pray this all for your glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. 
please have a seat. So I'm going to begin with a simple question for all the believers in here. Is, it, is your goal in life to live a Christian life? Meaning, is that one of your goals, to live a Christian life? I hope so. It should be the goal of all of us. But often we misunderstand what it means to live a Christian life. We often think that living the Christian life just means we live a moral life where we promote Christian values in our home, we promote those values in the church, and that's it. We're just moral people. And that's important, right? You don't want to minimize that. But that is not what it means to live a Christian life. Those are the things that are the result of living a Christian life. See, the problem is when we confuse the result of the Christian life with the Christian life itself, we end up living a lazy life rather than a life dedicated to Christ. We, we reduce Christianity down to just morals rather than what ultimately we've been called to do. See, the Christian life, just to give you the answer up front, is mainly about serving the Lord. If you want to live a Christian life, then you serve the Lord. It is presenting your entire life to God as one giant act of worship. And that worship is service. That's what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 made clear. That is how the Bible describes your life in Christ. It is a life of service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, I'll put it up here. Uh, Paul tells us one day we're going to stand before the Lord. And our Christian life is going to be evaluated. And look specifically what's being evaluated. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation, and the foundation he makes clear is Christ a few verses before this. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will, will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Okay, so the picture is really simple. We're working for Christ. We're serving him. We're building upon the foundation of the salvation he's given us. If you build with hay, what is fire going to do to it? It's going to burn it up. You will have nothing to show for it. If you build with stone, will fire burn that up? No. And so, of course, one day we will stand before the Lord and our work, our ministry, our service will be evaluated. Now, morals are important as well because 2 Corinthians 5.10 also talks about when we stand before Christ and we will also be evaluated on the good and bad that we did. But the emphasis here, of course, is our service. Was it solid service? Was it faithful? If so, it will pass the evaluation of Christ and there will be rewards. So living a good Christian life is living in a way that serves God and obeys the commands of Scripture. Now, our text this morning is going to display this truth in a very powerful way. Rather than just saying it, it's going to show it. And what I mean by that is Paul describes his life in Christ, what he has done as a Christian. And by describing what he's done and how he thinks, he shows us what it looks like to live a good Christian life. In fact, it's going to show us the point of the text. If you want the point of the text for all the note takers out there, which is good to be Bereans, right? The point is this. If you want to reduce all these verses down to one sentence, it's that Christians need to intentionally be on point for God's mission. Christians need to intentionally be on point for God's mission. It's not going to happen willy-nilly. It has to be intentional. That is what it means to live a good Christian life. 
Anything else from that will fall short. So if the point is that Christians need to be intentionally on point for God's mission, then a legitimate question is, how do we do it? Well, in our text, Paul shows us how he was on point for Christ's mission. He shows us in two steps. First, he evaluates what he's already done. Okay, that's the first half of the text. And then he shows us how intentional he is in planning what he'll do next. So if you want to know how to be on point for God's mission, then two things. Evaluate what you've already done. Look back at your life. What have you done in the Lord? And then based on that, make intentional plans for what you will do. Okay, that's how this is going to be broken up. Now, naively, I thought that I was going to be able to cover this whole text this morning and knock it out in one sermon. I know you guys would have thought, like, come on, man. Yeah, right. You? Sometimes I'm just, I don't evaluate myself properly. So I started writing this and realized, all right, I'm only getting halfway through this. So this morning, we're only hitting the first half, evaluating what you've already done. And we're going to see how Paul evaluates what he's done. And then next week, we'll focus on the future aspect, planning intentionally for what we will do in the future. Now, before getting into the text, there are a couple things we need to know. We are now in a new part of Romans. The body of the letter is done. He finished saying what he had to say doctrinally. That all ended in verse 13 of this chapter. So now we are in the conclusion. I think we've only got like four or five more sermons and then I'm done with Romans. I know. Yeah, right. But we'll see, right? The thing is, this ending, this this conclusion, scholars like to call it the frame or the ending frame. See, they say the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, is the beginning frame. And then now, chapter 15, verse 14, all the way to the end, is the, the ending frame. And they're, they're right. That's exactly what you find. These frames are personal. When you read them, you see that Paul is talking about his ministry. He's talking about his goals. He's talking about the Roman Christians personally, like what's good about them. He'll even start naming some of them in chapter 16. And the reason why these frames are so important is they let you know what the letter is really about. I know we always hear Romans as Paul's treatise on the gospel, but that's not why he wrote it. It's an occasional letter. What that means is there was an occasion that made him want to write it. And the occasion we saw when I read the text this morning, he wants to go to Rome. He has never met these people before. It was a very unique church. Okay, It wasn't founded by an apostle but it exists and it seems to thrive. It was likely the most westernmost church in the world when Paul wrote this, which was in the year 58. So a church, a strong church in Rome, would be a perfect base of operations for Paul to then launch out missions further west. And he told us where he wants to go like three times. He wants to go to Spain. The gospel had not yet reached that far. It seemed like Rome was the limit. And so he wants to take it even further. So he tells them, I want to visit you guys. I want to get to know you guys. I want to share the gospel with you guys the way that I preach it so that you can have buy-in to how I do my, my missionary work, right? And then he wanted them to be the church that supports him and sends him to get the gospel out to the furthest reaches of the West, okay? And the reason we know all this is he says it at the end of the book, and he says it at the beginning of the book in those frames, Okay? And so this morning, we're focusing and starting this ending frame. Now, if you were to go back to the first frame, and I'm not going to do that, but at the end of it, in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us the thesis of this letter. 
And it's a verse that a lot of us have memorized where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. That is the gospel, the power of the gospel, right? And so then he spends the rest of the book unpacking that, right? The good news of Jesus Christ. And he shows us it really is the power to save sinners, power of God to save sinners like us. And he shows us it saves both Jews and it saves Gentiles. And that's been God's plan all along. So Paul spent 11 chapters hitting a lot of the glorious details of the gospel. He then, in chapter 12, started, he spent two chapters telling us how the gospel should change the way we live, how it should transform us. And so this brings us back to the question, why spend 11 chapters on the gospel and then two chapters on how it should change us? Why so much detail? It's because there was a problem in Rome, and that's what we spent the last few sermons on. The Jewish and Gentile believers in that church were dividing over issues that God gives us liberty on. See, God lets us in the same church have different opinions on things like, should you keep the Sabbath? Or should you eat kosher or not? We're allowed to have different opinions and do things differently on that and still be part of the same church. We should be united. We shouldn't divide. Well, they were dividing over that to such a point that their church almost split. And if that would have happened, then Paul's entire plan goes up in flames. He needs that church strong because they're the ones that are going to send him to Spain. That's his plan. And so he wrote the gospel in such depth and how it transforms us to fix that problem. And with that problem fixed, then they would be united and they could send him to Spain, right? That's the whole point of Romans. And that's what the frames show us. So with the purpose of his letter now being done, he now moves us towards this end where he's going to pick up on what he was talking about at the beginning of the letter. He's going to go back to this idea of visiting them. He's going to lay out his plan to them. And so understand that the rest of Romans is all about that. Now, because of that, some folks don't see this part of the letter as being important. They say, no, the important stuff is the gospel stuff. Yet we all agree that all scriptures breathe by God, right? Breathe out by God. So all of this is important. And personally, I really, really like reading the end of Paul's letters because this is where he lays out his plans. He really gives you insight into the way he thinks, into his mind, how he thinks about his duty as a Christian, what he thinks about ministry. He always lays that out for us. And it also shows you, honestly, think, is there anybody in the history of the church that has been more effective than Paul? In terms of serving Christ, I can't think of anybody. So this shows us how the most effective Christian that has ever lived made his plans. If you don't think there's a boatload of stuff you could learn from that, then I don't think you're thinking clearly on this. Some of the most effective books that like leadership gurus out there write, they're based on the author going back and studying the most successful people, right? And reverse engineering how they thought and what they did to get them to their place. And then they just steal their ideas, write it in a book, and pass it off as if it's their own, okay? Right or wrong, that's what they do. Well, my point is for Christians, we should be looking at the most effective Christian and seeing what he did. Now, obviously, before that, we should be looking at Christ, Christ is the gold standard of who we should be imitating. So you should be studying the gospel. You should be seeing how Christ did ministry. But as far as imitating one of Christ's servants, somebody that's not God in the flesh, I can't think of anybody better than Paul. 
And Paul told us to do this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So as Paul is telling us what he's done and, and how he thinks and, and what he's doing, there's stuff we should be learning from this and we should be imitating it. And so it's with that mindset that I'm covering really the, the rest of this chapter. What I'm doing is I'm looking at how Paul thinks. And based on how he thinks, that main point becomes clear again, that Christians need to intentionally be on point for God's mission. And again, how? Evaluate what you've done and then be intentional about what you're going to do. So let's look to the first of these. Let's look to evaluating what you've already done. With Paul, we see that in verses 14 through 21. Before he gets to it and just tells you directly what he's done, he starts with a courtesy statement because that's what you did back then in letters. It's a true statement that you say about them, and it's a nice statement. And there's going to be a lot that we have to unpack from his nice statement. What he's going to do is he's going to state his overall confidence in them, in the Roman church. Did that church have problems? Yeah, we've seen those problems. But overall, they're a really strong church, just like he said at the beginning of the book. And so after he corrected them, he's going to go back to what they're good at. And dear brothers and sisters, before we read it, I do say there's a good lesson in that, right? It is not worldliness and it is not pop psychology to say it's a good idea to acknowledge the good in those that you mean to correct. Look, if all you do is correct people and all you are is critical, you will deflate people. And they will not want to listen to you. And they should not listen to you, right? If we're supposed to imitate Jesus, what did Jesus do in Revelation chapters 2 and 3? In the seven letters to the seven churches, he always started off with what they were doing right before he went to what they were doing wrong. The only exception was there was one church that wasn't doing nothing right. Horrible to be that church. I got nothing good to say about you. If that's what Christ says, oh man, you're in a bad place. But where there was something good to say, he started with that. And Paul does the same thing here, right? So I think we need to imitate that, especially if you want people to listen to you when you have correction. So with that in mind, look at verse 14. Paul writes this. He says, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. To have Paul the apostle say that about a church, that is a huge compliment, Okay, so if we unpack this, first he reminds them of the relationship, my brothers and sisters. That's family, okay? He's never met them, but in Christ, they are family, okay? Second, he says, I am convinced, okay, of these good things he's about to mention. Now, if you pay attention to Paul, he doesn't always say he's convinced. He reserves these for important moments. Like, for example, in chapter 8, verse 38, he said, I'm convinced nothing could separate us from the love of God, right? So he's got a lot of confidence in that, and he's saying he's got a lot of confidence in these Roman believers. Now, what is he convinced about them? First, he says they are, quote, full of goodness, okay? Does this mean they were perfect? No, he's already had to correct them on stuff. But goodness is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So any saved person should be full of goodness. What Paul is saying is, as a whole, this church is filled with good people in the Lord. Now, I get it. Some folks who have maybe recently come to Reformed theology will be like, wait a minute, nobody's good. Yes, you're right. Apart from the Lord, nobody's good. But our good Lord, the one who is good, saves us, puts the good Holy Spirit in us, gives us the good word of God, and inscribes it on our heart, and we start imitating him. 
What else are you going to call that other than being filled with goodness? Right? So we have to take the whole of what the word says. These people were good people in the Lord. They were filled with goodness. He also says they are, quote, filled with all knowledge. Does that mean they know everything? No. That's impossible for people. Only God who is infinite can have infinite knowledge. So what Paul is saying is that they're filled with all the knowledge of salvation. They've got the word of God at their fingertips. They understand the scriptures. They've been taught the scriptures. Proof of that is that if you take all the letters of Paul put together, half of his quotations of scripture are in this letter. Okay, the reason he would quote it so much is he knows they know it. They've been taught it. Well, loved ones, we're filled with all knowledge because we have the completed Bible. So as long as we're reading it and we're understanding it, the same thing could be said about us. He then says he is convinced they are, quote, able to instruct one another. Now, this is kind of important. This is missed in a lot of churches today. This word instruct is not the normal word for, like, teaching doctrine. This is the, the Greek word nutheteo. And so rather than like just giving doctrine to people, which is important, okay, God raises up teachers to do that, this means to actually use the scripture to teach people how to change, to admonish them, to warn them, to teach them how to be doers rather than just hearers. In other words, it means to counsel. In fact, that is the word that biblical counseling comes from. You often hear biblical counselors say that we are nothetic counselors. They didn't just make that word up. It comes from this word nothetao. The idea is that we know the Bible well enough to hear each other's problems and then to be able to figure out, biblically speaking, what the problem is and how to solve it, right? Now, this text and Paul's statement here is not the time or place for me to explain the method of biblical counseling, okay, or nothetic counseling. Uh, but if you want a good idea of what it entails, I preached a sermon on September 9th, 2018 called Biblical Transformation. You could just go into Sermon Audio, type in Biblical Transformation, it'll come up. I mean, that's where in like an hour and 10 minutes, I give you the, um, the basics of biblical counseling and why it is so much better than the failed psychology out there, okay? But it's not really Paul's point for me to go into that here. His point, right, isn't like why we should be seeking that instead of worldly counsel, but that is true, okay? Worldly counsel is always going to tell you the opposite of what the Bible does. That's why it doesn't work. But Paul's point here is that, and this is what's mind-blowing, he's saying all the Roman Christians are capable of this. He says you're all able to instruct or nothateo one another, okay? Just like we're all capable of evangelizing, he's saying we're all capable of counseling each other. Now, of course, it takes training. You know, it helps to sit through evangelism classes, it helps, to sit through, it helps to sit through counseling training. But the point is, he says we're all able to do it. That, that, that is his point here. Okay? And of course, some people are gifted to be evangelists. doesn't get the rest of us off the hook. And some people are gifted to be counselors. But it doesn't get the rest of us off the hook. We're all supposed to at least be able to do this on some level. And I want you to think about it. If pastors are supposed to first be dedicated to the Word of God and prayer, as Acts chapter 6, verse 4 says then we do not have time to counsel every believer for all their problems. I mean, you've heard us say before, it takes about 20 hours per sermon, right? And then we got all the other stuff that we have to do as well. And so we would never get to that if we were counseling everybody all the time. And so what I think is, I think we need to get it out of our heads that only a guy with a title can help me. That's how the world thinks. It's the professionalism mindset of the world. Paul just said, all of us can do this. So 
if the church body as a whole takes some ownership of this, it would actually make the church as a whole a lot healthier and it would free the pastors up for more word-based ministry. But I don't want you to get me wrong. Some issues are big enough to require the help of your pastors, right? Doesn't mean you're ready to counsel every issue. Just like you might go evangelize somebody and you run into Richard Dawkins, okay, you might just need somebody who knows a little more about evangelism and apologetics to to get into that, that battle with him. Same thing with counseling. Somebody might come to you with something that you're like, okay, this one, I need help. And that's okay. We're there to, to help with those big ones. But what, what I'm getting at is I could promise you that not every issue you have are those big ones that needs a guy with the title, okay? A lot of them we are able to handle ourselves. And so I think there's an implied task in what he's saying here. As individuals, we need to be intentional about growing in our ability to give people biblical counsel. And listen, if you're not intentional about it, you're going to give them psychobabble, pop psychology from the world. It, it's... It's unfortunate how often I have to correct that, where a well-meaning Christian is just going to say something they heard from Dr. Phil or Oprah. That's not where you get your information, okay? So be intentional about growing in this, and you'll actually be able to help people with real biblical advice, okay? So as individuals, we need to pursue that, but also as a church, we need to offer the training. We did so. We offered 30 hours in 2018. We're going to do it again either this year in the fall or early next year. So if you're interested in that, um, I'll be making announcements when we get close to it, and then we'll, we'll get stuff going with that. But we definitely want all of our people to be able to, to do this, because it only makes the church healthier. But anyway, getting back to Paul's point here, he's telling these Roman Christians that they are capable of all of this. They are good. They know the word of God, and they could counsel each other. Well, in verse 15, it, it kind of seems weird, because he's going to make a concessive statement. And you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 15. He says, Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God. Okay, in other words, it's like, Paul, if you think they're so great, then you wouldn't have to correct them, right? Well, not necessarily. Paul's saying, look, you really are solid, right? You're solid people. But even with that, I still had to remind you of some truths very boldly. And that's what makes the sentence concessive. It's like, yes, you're good, but still, I I had to lay a couple hard truths on you. Now, what were these points that he was bold on? Well, I think it's throughout the letter. He was bold in reminding us that we are all sinners. We all deserve hell. Who has sinned? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death, right? And only through Christ can you be saved. Okay, he was very bold in saying that. He was bold in saying in Romans 6, you are not to live as a slave to sin anymore. How could you say, like you who've been freed from sin, still live as a slave to sin? There should be a battle, as chapter 7 shows. He was bold in telling the Gentiles, hey, he's not done with Israel. He was bold in telling them, look, I mean, it's a bold thing to say you're wild branches being grafted onto somebody else's olive tree. So don't be arrogant against the natural branches. He was bold in telling both Jews and Gentiles in Romans 14 that they were failing to love each other. You guys aren't doing it right is what he was saying. And that's why they're dividing over foolish things. So he had to remind them boldly of these things. Why? I mean, think about it. They're they're a solid church, but why would he still need to remind them? Because these were blind spots. They were blind spots to an otherwise strong church filled with strong Christians. And if left unchecked, 
These blind spots would do serious damage to that church, and they would compromise its ability to work towards the Great Commission. And loved ones, there is a good lesson in that for any of us. As much as you might be growing in the Word, we all still have blind spots. We all still fall short. We do this as both individuals and as a church. So we should not get so offended if someone has to correct us with the Word of God, just like Paul did here. Paul just said, this is a church filled with goodness, knowledge, and capable of counseling each other. And I believe we could say the same about us. Yet, even a church that good still needed to be boldly reminded of some things. And notice this word reminded. You are reminded of things you already know, right? He's not teaching them new stuff. He's bringing up stuff they've heard before, but what he's doing is he's shining a bigger light on it. You might know something up here, but if it is not changing what you do here and what you do here, like with your heart and your hands, then a bigger light needs to be exposed on that. You need to be reminded so that you can live in accordance with that, okay? And so I just bring that up to say, I think we all need this kind of thing a lot more than we want or think, but we need it, right? We need to have a humble posture when it comes to stuff like this. Now, Paul ends verse 15 by telling them he was able to do this, quote, because of the grace given me by God. What he's telling them is him correcting them, even though he didn't know them. This was part of his calling. And he's going to impact what his calling is here. And this starts to give you an insight to how Paul thinks about ministry. So look at verse 16. He says that this grace was given to him by God, quote, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's saying here is real simple. He's saying, I could correct you guys, even though I've never met you, because by God's grace, he made me a minister specifically to you, to the Gentiles. Now, if you don't know, Gentiles is just the Bible word for nations. Okay, you have Israel, then you have all the other nations. All the nations are the Gentiles. And Paul was specifically raised up as an apostle to bring the gospel to them. Now, what's interesting is this word minister that he uses is not the normal word for minister, okay? This is actually a word that means priestly service or priestly worship. It is the word liturgos, where we get the word liturgy from. And liturgy just means an order of worship, right? Like churches have a specific way that they go through each item of worship every uh, Sunday morning. And we get this word from the Old Testament, Because in the Old Testament, the Old Testament priests had to follow God's prescribed order of when they do what and how the sacrifices work. That is all priestly worship. That's service. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I'm like an Old Testament priest in the temple of God, making offerings to God according to his prescribed order. That's my service, right? What he's saying is his apostleship is like that. God called him specifically to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations so that he could then bring those nations into salvation, into union with Israel and their promises, the promises that God made to them. So in light of that ministry, if you look at it again in verse 16, Paul says he serves, quote, or ministers as a priest of the gospel of God. So it's very interesting Even though the New Testament calls us all priests, like we're a universal priesthood of believers, okay, this is the only time priest is mentioned of a church 
leader. And it's not to be taken literally, okay? This is why Catholic priests are not really priests. Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, their priests aren't priests. Biblically, a priest by definition was someone from the tribe of Levi of the house of Aaron, like Al Cohen, anyway, um, from the tribe of Levi of the house of Aaron, and they would go in the temple of God and they would make specific sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, exactly the way God prescribed in the Old Testament. That was a priest. So none of us really are that. It's an analogy. Paul is using it as an analogy. He's saying my work is like that. You could compare it to that. He's saying my missionary work to bring the Gentiles to Jesus is like a priest bringing an offering to God. That is what is priestly about what he's doing. And again, this shows you how he thinks about ministry, how he thinks about his life. It shows you that he treated his whole life. Everything he does is an act of worship, not just the songs. Okay, everything he does is an act of worship. Okay, he says that God's purpose in this, if you keep reading, he says God's purpose is, quote, that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the Gentile believers themselves, they are the offering. Okay, Paul's saying me bringing them to the Lord through the gospel, that's my offering to God. And God is the one who makes them holy. He sets them apart as holy. He sanctifies them by the Holy Spirit which means they are a beautiful and acceptable offering made unto God. And so if we kind of put this all together, Paul's point is he could write boldly to this group of Christians and remind them of hard truths because God has given him a priest-like assignment of presenting these very people to God as holy, just like a priest in the Old Testament would, would do. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, the priest had the job of inspecting every animal that was going to be sacrificed, making sure that it was holy and, and met every, every requirement that God had. Well, Paul's doing the same thing. He wants to present the Gentiles as holy. He wants to make sure they stay on the straight and narrow, okay? That is how he saw his life. And I say that since the New Testament calls us all priests in First Peter, we need to see our life that way as well. Everything we're doing for the Lord It's like an analogy to that priesthood. We are taking it to God and we are offering it as an offering. So the question is, as Pastor Josh has been showing in Malachi, how does God feel when you bring him the garbage as your offering, as your afterthought? Does he like it? Does he accept it? God only wants your best. And so that means in your service to him, it better not be the leftovers. It better not be the afterthoughts. It needs to be your best. Okay, And that's how Paul is describing his life and his ministry. And we'll be able to see what the results of that are as we go on. Okay, But anyway, his courtesy statement is now done. And he's going to get to the real reason he wrote this letter. Okay, He gave them a detailed gospel. He corrected some bad behavior because of that special role that God gave him. And what he's going to tell them is, I'm not done with that role. I got more work to do. Okay, there's more that God wants me to do. I don't get to retire. Okay, and when you when we get to the end of this and we see how much Paul's done, an American would want to retire. Paul's saying, I'm just getting started, right? He's just getting started and he believes these Roman Christians have a big part to play in his next phase of the plan, right? In his next carrying out of this role, okay? But before he tells them what he plans to do, he first has to tell them what he's already done. He has to evaluate his past, Because his future plan only makes sense in light of what he's already done. It's building on what he's already done. So he needs these Romans to understand the nature of his ministry. He already told them 
Its nature is to offer the Gentiles or nations to God. Well, there's a lot more nations he hasn't reached yet. He's reached a lot. And so he needs to tell them how he reached the ones that he did reach. Okay? But he's then also going to tell them, this is my plan to reach the ones I haven't reached. And again, it's in all that that we see that, that Christians need to intentionally be on point for Christ's mission. That's ultimately what this is all about. So let's look at his evaluation of what he has already done. We, we start to see it in verse 17. He writes this. He says, Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. Okay? So he says, I have reason to boast in Jesus, not in himself, right? So what he's making it clear is he's going to list what he's done. And he knows it's going to sound like a boast. And so what he's telling them is, just so you know, I'm boasting in Jesus, not in Paul. Okay? Because ultimately, it's not my power or accomplishments. It's Jesus's. Now, I, I think... If any of us did as much as Paul did, we might be tempted to get cocky and say, look at all that I did. But Paul is making sure that that will not be in his mindset. Instead, what he's saying is he's saying, look at all that Christ did through a weak instrument like me. There's no way I could have done it all on my own. It all depended on the word of God and the spirit of God working together in me. It depended on God leading me every step of the way, controlling every detail of my life so that I was at the right places at the right time to speak to the appointed people at the appointed time. I can't control that. Only God can make that happen. And then when I was speaking at those appointed times, it was the Holy Spirit that breathed new life into those people and into their hearts so that they could understand what I was speaking and then come to the Lord. None of that I could do. Only Christ can do that. In other words, this is a good reminder. If you're the human mouth that God uses to bring someone to the Lord, you need to remember that even though you were the one that spoke the gospel, there were about a billion things outside of your control that God orchestrated in order to make your work successful in bringing that person to the Lord. So you cannot take credit for yourself. And don't you dare ever try, okay? The boast is not your own. Your boast is only in Christ. And so with that mindset, Paul continues in verse 18. He says, quote, For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles. Again, you see how this man sees his ministry. He works hard, but who gets the credit? It's always Jesus. He's limiting his boast. And he's saying that, yeah, it was Jesus. It was done by my word and deed, right? He says, I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed. So it's Paul's words. It's Paul's deeds. But who's the one accomplishing anything? Jesus. Okay, so yes, I spoke the words. Yes, I did the deeds, but it's only Jesus accomplishing his will through what I'm doing. And what is Jesus's will through Paul's work? He says, quote, the obedience of the Gentiles, which is just a way of saying the conversion of the Gentiles to Christ. You see, when a people comes to the Lord, they turn away from their false gods. They turn away from their idols and their sins and they turn to God, and they turn to his commandments. That is why you could describe the salvation of a people as the obedience of the people. Now, don't get that wrong. Obedience is not what saves you. Salvation is what leads to the obedience. But the way the Bible talks is that when you've been saved, that obedience is there, okay? And so that's why he will call the conversion of the Gentiles the obedience of the Gentiles. They obeyed the call of God to turn from their sins and to turn to Christ in faith. Right, And so a lot of Gentiles 
from a lot of different national identities have come to Christ through Paul's words and deeds. But he's saying Jesus is the one making it happen. And loved ones, it is the same way with any of our ministries, okay? We all have what the Lord entrusted to us, okay? You are the one who steps out and does the words and the deeds, right? Okay, you're the one who's obediently doing that, but the results are always dependent upon God, okay? They're always dependent on Christ. That way, you have no excuse to boast in yourself. Instead, you boast in the Lord. If you ever find yourself saying how many great things you've done for the Lord and how nobody's doing what you're doing, then I dare say you've missed the point of the entire Bible, okay? That is not how it's supposed to be. We need to humble ourselves and realize that the only good, that only the good comes from God and only the bad comes from us. That was one of those life lessons that was good to write on my mind. The only thing I get credit for are my failures. The only thing, the only one who gets credit for my victories is God. Okay? And so we, we, we need to think that way. Paul thinks that way. I mean, this guy did amazing things, but he's saying only it's Christ who did it. Okay? Now, he's saying that the the salvation of the Gentiles was accomplished by Christ through his work, and then he's going to tell us what that work was, like what it looked like. In the first part of verse 19, he tells us exactly how it was done. He says this was done, quote, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit, okay? And so we know that the Holy Spirit did some amazing things and amazing miracles through Paul. You just have to read the book of Acts. I'll give you a fast summary up to this point of Paul's life. When his first missionary journey started, he blinded a false teacher with a mere word. That's awesome. I wish I could do that. Okay. Second, I'd probably abuse that. I'd abuse the power, so never mind. Okay. In Iconium, he preached and then he followed up his preaching with many signs and wonders. When he entered the city of Lystra, he healed a man who was crippled from birth. Okay? When he started his second missionary journey, when he was in Philippi, he cast out a demon from a fortune teller. When he was in Ephesus, he healed diseases, he cast out demons, and then even the rags he wiped his sweat with and threw away, people would touch them and be healed of their diseases. Now, those are all things that are briefly mentioned in the book of Acts. And what it did is it showcased to a pagan people that their false gods have no lasting power. Yeah, behind all the fake gods are demons, right? And demons do have a measure of power, but nothing compared to the God of Israel who has all power. And he was showcasing that to all the pagans through his servant Paul. And Paul made it clear, when Paul's doing all this stuff, in whose name and authority was it done? Jesus. Paul preached the Messiah, Jesus, and made it clear only in the name, authority, and power of Jesus could these signs and wonders be done. So what it did is it showed a pagan world that the God of the Bible is God and Jesus is the king. He is the savior. Okay, He is the man whom God has appointed that will judge the whole world. And the signs and wonders showed that. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about this phrase, signs and wonders, because Paul says he did miraculous signs and wonders. And sometimes what preachers do is they waste time trying to tell you the difference. I used to do this. Well, the miracle is the act. And then the wonder is people saying, what does it mean? And then the sign is what it points to. Listen, that's all made up. Just telling you that. Sounds good. My suggestion is, rather than speculate, let the Bible tell you what, what it means. Okay? Where did this phrase come from? 
It came from Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, when God is telling Moses what he's going to do in Egypt to free and redeem his people from Egypt. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And then multiple times he'll keep calling these his, his signs and wonders. And if you continue reading in Exodus 7, he tells you why. It is so that the Egyptians will know he is God. It is for the fame of his name to spread to all the nations when they see what he has done to the most powerful country in the world. And did it work? Yes, because once you get to Joshua chapter 2 and Israel's going into the land to conquer it, you have the Canaanite uh, prostitute Rahab. And what does she tell the spies of Israel that she's protecting? She says, I've heard about your God. I heard what he did in Egypt. I heard what he did across the Jordan River. I want to follow that God. And she was spared, right? So this is exactly what God's signs and wonders are. Okay, so I just bring that up to say that the phrase signs and wonders is just what God calls his powerful acts that he does, right? And he tells us they are done for the purpose of showing Israel and the nations that he is God. It is to comfort Israel, his people, and it is to scare the nations to know that, okay, we need to not rebel against this God, okay? Now, how this relates to Paul's ministry is simple. Christ comes... And he fulfills what the Old Testament had been pointing to all along. That sin was going to be forgiven, right, through the servant of the Lord. Sin could be forgiven because Jesus is God and he came down as a man and he lived a perfect life. And then he took the penalty of all those who would believe in him, of all these sinners. He took all their sin, put it in his account, and then he died as the once and for all sacrifice to take our penalty forever and ever. That's why we don't have to pay for our sins. Because he was punished in our place. Just like those sacrifices of old pointed to, he was the fulfillment of that. And yet, we also need to attain God's standard of righteousness, which is perfection. Can you do it? No. But did Jesus do it? Yes. And so the way it works is when you believe in him, you get the credit of his perfect life. He got the credit of your bad life and died for you. Yet you get the reward of his perfect life. So now... Salvation was possible. The way back to God was made. The veil in the temple was torn. The way to God and the Holy of Holies was now available to all who believe in Jesus. Not just to Israel, but to the whole world, meaning every nation. So Israel needed to know that God was doing this, that God fulfilled these promises. That's why Christ showed up with signs and wonders. That's why he appointed 12 apostles to go to Israel with signs and wonders so that just like in the days of the Exodus, Israel would know redemption has come. But the nations needed to know this as well, right? Because the prophets made it clear that when the last days come, when the days of the Messiah come, God is going to gather in the nations to be with Israel and to be saved with them by that same Messiah. So how would the pagans know this is true? They don't have the Bible, so God needed to raise up an apostle to them as well and go show the same signs and wonders. So both the apostles to Israel and the one apostle to the Gentiles were empowered with signs and wonders for that purpose. And that is why I question all these chumps out there who say they're doing signs and wonders. Okay, I really do. I question it all, especially when Paul's saying this is all through Christ. And yet they're out there saying, look at me, send a thousand dollars and you'll be rich. And all that does is give them a gallon of fuel for their, for their helicopter. But the point is, those guys aren't really doing signs and wonders. This was for the apostles. Okay, it's not to say God doesn't do miracles, but the signs and wonders stuff, 
from Exodus and from Christ and from the apostles, that was unique. And so Paul brings us all up to the Roman Christians to make a couple things clear. He's first saying, I'm an apostle just like the other ones you've heard about. I'm able to do the same signs and wonders through Jesus Christ. Second, if he is an apostle, then he has a specific purpose and mission for all those signs and wonders. And he already told us it was the obedience of the Gentiles, meaning their conversion. Third, he's letting them know that his ministry is entirely empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because only by the Spirit of God can someone perform signs and wonders. And really, I'm going to say only by the Spirit of God could any of us do any of our ministries. Okay, His was maybe a little bigger than ours. But it's only by the Spirit of God that anybody could do anything in Christ. Okay? Now, Paul makes this clear. Look at the first part of verse 19 again. He says, Christ is bringing the Gentiles to faith, quote, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. That is why Paul could not boast in himself, but he could only boast in Christ and in the Spirit of God. So, this lets his Roman Christian audience know that he has been faithful in the mission that God assigned to him. Paul could look back at the past, and he could say this, right? I've been faithful with what God's entrusted to me. So we should pause at this moment, and we should ask ourselves, can we say the same thing about our Christian life? If you've been a Christian for a while, can you look back and say that, you know what, look at all this, I need to boast in Christ for all that he's accomplished? Now, you might not be displaying signs and wonders. I'm not expecting that to come from any of us. But ask yourself this, have I brought anybody to the Lord? And ultimately, only the Spirit does that through our speaking. You could speak to 100 people and maybe nobody comes. So then you ask yourself, okay, well, how many people have I told about Jesus? Is it even close to the total number of people that God has put in my life regularly to where I can at least talk to them about it? Have you served diligently at the churches that you've been a part of? Would the people at your last church even know who you are? Would they be able to say, if somebody called them and asked about you, like what your spiritual gift or gifts were because you were busy serving, okay? Would they be able to say that? Would they be able to say that you were competent to counsel them with the Bible on regular issues of life? See, these are the kind of questions that we need to reflect upon when we look back on what we've already done for the Lord. Okay? And even with these things, it is Christ working through us. And all these things can only succeed by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. Now, these kind of questions deal with the what. You know, like, what have I done in the Lord? And Paul made it clear his what was he was bringing the Gentiles to faith by signs and wonders and by preaching the gospel. But sadly, I think there are far too many folks who would answer the what Question with, well, I haven't done anything, right? I haven't done any of that. I just show up on Sunday. I, I, I mark it off, and then I go about the rest of my life through the rest of my week without serving Christ at all. I don't even think about it. Well, that's not a good place to be. But here's the good news. As long as you are breathing, you can repent. You could say to yourself that today this changes. See, we're not called to do nothing. And the most striking teaching on that comes from Jesus in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. Okay, he's got three servants. He gives them different amounts of talents that he expects them to work with. It's a monetary unit. And the third guy didn't do anything. He didn't lose it. He just didn't do anything. He sat on it. That guy got condemned. He got condemned in that parable for being a wicked and lazy servant. 
That should be plenty of motivation for us to be like the other two servants who put to work what Christ has entrusted to us. So even if you have nothing to show for your Christian life as of today, our master has not returned from his long journey yet. You have time to start telling people about Jesus, inviting them to church, using your gifts within the church, praying diligently for others, providing discipleship within your family and to others, right? And there's so many things you could do to help mercy ministry, to help the poor out in our community, or benevolence to help those who struggle within the church, or missions. There's so much we could do. And we only have time until we die or until Christ returns. Now, for what it's worth, Even Paul needed to be shaken out of a rut, in my opinion. When he first came to Christ, he was was ready to go. But once he was in Jerusalem, they tried to kill him. And so the church, to save his life, said, you need to go back to Tarsus. And so maybe he he was down from that. Because when you go to Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Barnabas has to go look for Paul. Because the work in Antioch got so big, Barnabas is like, I need Paul's help to pastor these people. Well, the Greek tells us that Barnabas had to look for Paul, and the word is search with difficulty, meaning it was not easy for him to find Paul. Now, Paul, as we read in the rest of Acts, would have been easy to find. His enemies were able to find him all the time, right? But Barnabas had a hard time finding him. That implies he wasn't active at that time. But once God gave him that jump start through Barnabas, then guess what? He goes back to Antioch. He pastors for a year as God was preparing him for something bigger. After that year was up, God called and sent Paul on the missions, and he'd been serving his heart out ever since. So I say all that to say, even if you've been on the sidelines, let today be the day that you change that. Consider this sermon as Barnabas knocking on your door and telling you it's time to get to work. You can no longer just sit on this talent anymore. There is so much for all of us to do. There was much for Paul to do. And when you are found doing what you're supposed to do, there are results that the Lord's going to bring, tangible, measurable results. Now, you don't know ahead of time what those results will be, but when you look back, you should be able to see them. In the second half of verse 19, Paul tells us the results of his work. He writes this, He says, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now, we know that in Acts, he started in Damascus, but he mentions Jerusalem as the starting point because that's the center of the world, according to Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. It's at least the center of the world in terms of salvation going out. And so if it's going to the Gentiles, it starts there. And what Paul is saying is that he got the gospel from Jerusalem in a circular motion. That's why he says all the way around to Illyricum. It's kind of like in an arc, a motion all the way to Illyricum. Now, you might say, where's Illyricum? I can't find that on a map today. Today, it would be Croatia. Now, if you're a little older, 20 years ago, that would have been Yugoslavia. If you're a little older than that, like 100 years old, it would have been Serbia. Okay, so the point is, <laughs> the point is, this is quite the distance. I, I put a map up here. It's 1,400 miles. Now, did he have a car? Did he have a dune buggy? Did he have Crefro? No, no, right. Did he have a helicopter? He had sandals. Sandals. This was done on foot. And what's crazy is he had only been a Christian for 25 years by this point. I've been a Christian 26 years. I planted one church, okay? Paul, don't have a, I can't compare, right? And so that's what Paul was, was able to do for the Lord. Now, notice he says he fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
So we have to ask an answer. Does that mean that he preached to every single person in that 1,400-mile arc? No, probably not. But when we look at Paul's strategy, what it means is he would stop in the major cities. He would plant a church. He would stay there for a while until he raised up strong disciples who knew the word of God. Okay? Then from those disciples, he'd raise up pastors. Once there were elders or pastors, he would move on. And then those pastors would stay behind and continue to preach. They would raise up more pastors. They'd raise up deacons. They'd teach their people how to evangelize. And eventually their people would go and plant churches in the nearby towns. And we know that's how he did it because of the book of Colossians. Right? Paul never planted that church. He didn't know those people. But he tells us in Colossians that it was his disciple Epaphras who did. Right, So Paul raised up probably the church of Ephesus, spent a lot of time there. Epaphras then moves on to nearby Colossae and plants a church there. And because it came out of that work of Ephesus that Paul did, Paul still saw Colossae as being under his ministry. So he writes them that letter. That is how he gets the gospel fully to the nations. And loved ones, that's how missionary work has to work. Um, It doesn't work just by you making a convert overseas, right? Somebody might, like you might send them a gospel tract, they might get saved, but that doesn't lead to there being a church, pastors, deacons, evangelists. You have to plant a church. It's a lot more work than that. And Paul did that in all the major cities for that 1,400-mile arc to where he could then say, I'm not needed here anymore. These churches are going to finish the job. They're going to get to where every single person here is going to hear the message of the gospel. Okay, So the point is, you do the work like Paul did the work. God brings the results he means to bring. Now, these results relate to what Paul wants to say to the Romans. We'll see in the next text when I, when I preach next time that all that that he's doing in that 1,400 miles He's saying, that's why I've never come to see you yet in Rome. You might be wondering why I never visited you. It's not because I don't like you. It's because there was a lot of work that I had to do over here. But he's going to tell them, I'm now done. There's nothing left for me to do there, right? So now I want to come to you guys. But I don't want to retire in Rome. I want to get to know you a little bit, and then I want to go do this again. Maybe 1,400 more miles, right? Let's just keep doing this. Let's get all the way to Spain. Okay, And so he tells them, right? He tells them why he wants to go to Spain. You know, like why go where it's never been proclaimed? He answers in verse 20. He says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. In other words, if one of the other apostles or their associates is planting churches in an area, he's like, I don't need to go there. Those places, they're going to be reached. I'll be wasting my time, the time that the Lord has given me. See, Paul would look at the map, a map like this. He would look at it as a strategist, right? He would look at it as a strategist, and he would say, where has the gospel not yet reached? Kind of like we pray for the unreached people groups, you know, every Sunday. We're looking at where has Christ's name not been proclaimed. Now, why? Why is that the strategy? Because Jesus made it clear. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he said, The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Too many Christians just just sit down and say, I'm waiting to see the Antichrist. Then I know the end will come. Instead of wanting to see the Antichrist, do what Christ said. Let's get the gospel to all the nations, then we'll see the Christ. Okay, now I do believe there will be an Antichrist, but dang it, that's not what I'm looking for. Okay, we need to get the gospel to those who have not heard. And that is why Paul is like fanatic about this. Okay, it makes no sense to spend 20 years in a place that already has missionaries unless they specifically need your help. 
So let me give another example. Okay, Paul had already done his work in Ephesus. He's in Rome. He's getting ready to move on to Spain. Ephesus has problems. Does Paul go back? No, he sends Timothy, right? So yeah, there will be some missionaries sent to places already reached to help strengthen what's going on there. But there's going to be guys like Paul, and we need a lot more guys like Paul who are willing to go to those who have not yet heard. And so that's Paul's philosophy of ministry. And he gets this philosophy from the scripture. In verse 21, he's going to quote Isaiah 52, 15. He says this, he says, But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Okay, so that passage in Isaiah is talking about how the nations are going to be saved by the work of the Messiah. And Isaiah is saying these people who have not heard and have not understood, they're going to hear, they're going to understand, and they're going to be saved. And Paul's saying, that's my mission, to go to those who haven't heard and don't understand and to tell them so that they will. So by telling them this, what Paul is forecasting to them is he's like, look, I'm not coming to Rome to take over. I'm not going to show up and say, hey, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, so this is this, you all got to do what I have to say, right? He's saying that you're already somebody else's foundation. He says, instead, I want to come to you. I want to partner with you so that through your resources, we can reach the next big geographic area, right? And so that's why before he tells them his future plans, he needed to show them what he'd already done and why he does it the way he does it, because these two things are related. He wants to expand what he's already done. And that's why I said for Paul, retirement's not an option. He might retire from tent making, okay? I want to blame him for that, but he's not going to retire from being a gospel preacher. And likewise, I don't think any of us get to retire from ministry, from from our service to the Lord. I suppose there might come a point where you don't make sense anymore. Okay, fine. Your ministry is now to let other people take care of you. Um, but, But for the most part, until we get to that point, we're supposed to keep serving, Okay, the Great Commission is not done. So with all that, we've seen what Paul's already done. We've seen these impressive, tangible, nameable results, like 1,400 miles covered. We've considered what, that, that we should look back right, at what we've done, and we should look for the results that God's done through us. And so that's why I say Paul's mindset really does show us that as Christians, we need to intentionally be on point for God's mission. And the first step is look back at what you've already done so you could build on that. So as I'm wrapping up, loved ones, let's ask some questions. Are you living the Christian life by being intentionally on point for God's mission? If so, if yes, then you can look back at what you've already done and there will be tangible stuff that, okay, thank God that he's been doing these things, right? And then from there, are you planning on building that? Not just staying where that's at, but building it, going further, right? Look, I know when we look at Paul, we might get tempted to say, hey, we're not doing anything compared to him, right? But that's not the point. If you looked closely at the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, again, Jesus compares the Christian life to different people having different skill sets. One guy, so he gives them talents. A talent is the equivalent of 20 years worth of work. So take what you make per year, multiply that by 20 years, that's one talent, okay? He gives one guy five of those. That's 100 years worth of work. He gives another guy two and another guy one. Why did he give one five? Because that guy's got the ability. God's given that guy the capabilities to manage that. The guy with the one doesn't have the ability to manage five, right? So God's only, he's not expecting you to be Paul. If Paul was in this parable, he had like 100 talents, 
okay? He's, he's not even on the chart here. God's expecting 100 talents worth of work from Paul, not from you, unless he's given you 100 talents worth of capacity, right, and ability, okay? And so what Christ's ex- expectation is, is that you serve to the max of what he has entrusted to you. If he's entrusted one talent worth to you, that's all he's looking for from you. If he's entrusted two, then that's what he's looking for. If he's entrusted five, that's what he's looking for. If he's given you five, he doesn't want you to do the work of one. He's given you more ability than that. Okay, but if he's given you one, he's not asking you to do the work of five. He knows he's not given you that, right? So we don't have to look at Paul and say, I'll never measure up. You're not supposed to measure up to him. You're supposed to measure up to what the Lord has entrusted to you. Okay? It's that simple. And remember, the, the third person, the guy who only had the one, he just sat on it. He didn't lose it. He didn't gamble it. He was able to give it back, but he was condemned, right? And so that lets me know that those who don't serve the Lord at all are in danger of maybe proving themselves to be fake Christians, okay? fake believers. But I didn't bring up that parable to scare people. I, I bring it up just to explain how we have the different capacities. You are to work towards your capacity. Paul worked to his. Paul's a great example, not because of how much he did, but because he was faithful with what was entrusted to him. And because he was faithful, he was able to look back and see a result. And then he was able to plan for the future based on that. So the question for us, the question for all of us, the question for you is, are you doing the same? Are you faithfully working with what you've been entrusted with? Because that is what it means to live a good Christian life. Okay, you should be able to look back at the past few years and see some tangible results. And those tangible results should be setting you up for whatever it is you're going to do next. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm a new believer. How's this work for me? You're off the hook. But start serving. Start serving really, like serve your heart out to your capacity. And then a year from now, look back. And you're going to see how the Lord's grown you. Like, hey, in that year, I've read half the Bible. I know more about Jesus. I've told at least five of my friends about Jesus. You'll be able to look back and, and see what the Lord is doing. And then from there, build up. Keep doing more, right? Now, if you've been a Christian for a while and you're not serving as you should, start right now. Delay no longer. And then a year from now, you look back and see uh, how the Lord's growing you. See, when we evaluate our past, like Paul did in our text, It helps us see if we're living on mission for Christ. It's easy for us to say it, okay? But if we are, then we would be able to show it. And it was like Pastor Josh was saying in the last song, it's one thing to say, fan the flames in me. And if we're doing nothing, those are meaningless words, okay? They're meaningless words. If we're doing what we're supposed to, we will be able to look back and see see that we are, okay? And so here's the thing. If we're not doing what we should, Get busy. That's what this text should remind us of. If we are serving, but not to our capacity, if you've got five talents and you're doing the work of two right now, then come on, kick it up a notch. You know better, right? You know better. You could do more work to the abilities that Christ has given you. Now, if you're serving exactly at your capacity and doing exactly what you should be doing like Paul was, well, then it will encourage you to keep going because God's going to continue to do great things, right, through your work. And so I say all this because this kind, of bene- this kind of evaluation is beneficial for all of us. So loved ones, may we look at our lives, like Paul looked at his own, as a life on mission for Jesus. May we see it that way. May we see our whole life as worship and service and then actually live like it, right? And let's help each other. 
Because we are told to help one another with this, to stir one another up to do good works. That's what Hebrews 10.25 says. So may we do that, right? Because we are better together than we are when we're alone. So it's my prayer that God will fire us up, all of us, to be servants on point for our mission for God. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, just really quickly, like all this mission for God won't make a lot of sense to you because like right now, you're a sinner who is guilty before an almighty, all-powerful, holy God, right? So serving him is not even like, you know, in, in front of your, your eyes yet. But what is in front of your eyes is an eternity without God and an eternity in punishment because of your sin. You're guilty. It's not unfair when a criminal goes to jail or prison for the crime they committed. And it is not unfair for anybody to be eternally punished by God for cosmic treason against an eternal being who is good and powerful to whom we owe everything to, right? So for you, what I would say is real simple. God is calling people from the nations into his salvation, and he is willing to receive you as an offering unto him through the work of Jesus Christ. And so it's real simple. All you have to do is believe on Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your your worship of self. Turn away from that. Turn to Jesus in faith. Believe upon him and all your sins will be forgiven because he paid for our sins. You'll be credited with his righteousness. You will be a new creature, okay? The Lord will make you something new and he will add you into his people, right? And so don't stay in your sins, don't stand your sins. Come to the Lord today. It's real simple. You don't have to do any like, like raise your hand or say a prayer or anything like that. You just simply, when we're praying, you pray to God and say, God, I'm turning away from my sins. I'm turning to you in faith. I'm yours, God. I'm yours. And then afterwards, come and talk to us and we'll tell you what comes next. But with that, we're going to pray and then we're going to sing and we got two baptisms and we get to take the Lord's Supper. So our God is doing amazing things among us this morning. So